0: I am happy to announce that the winner is all about Eve.
1: Parasite.
0: Bermond oh! versus Craig. Chicago. Chicago! West Side Story. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King.
1: Run through over the cookies.
0: Shakespeare in Love.
1: May I have the envelope, please?
0: It is April tenth, nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, we are in the first half of the Academy Awards ceremony, the fortieth annual Academy Awards. That's right; it's been forty years since we started Oscar, and it's a uh, man, goodness, we've been through uh, so many decades of different types of movies and um, uh, and uh, uh, significant markers and film and cultural history. And I don't think there's a year that better represents that than 1967. So instead of asking for the envelope, please, right now, I am going to ask instead for us to go over this incredible year of transition in Hollywood. Does that sound good, Sam? Can you hand me that envelope? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let me. Yeah, absolutely. I will read to you the four nominees uh, that did not win Best Picture. For 1967. The four nominees are Bonnie and Clyde, mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Uh huh. The Graduate, mm-hmm. and Dr. Doolittle. Oh. <laughs> oh. I was really
0: on, I was on board until we got, until we got to that last one. Did
1: you notice a little one of these things is not like the
0: other? <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a bigger case of one of these things is not like the other. Like... It's so Good. blatantly obvious. It's it's embarrassing. It's
1: ridiculous. In fact, I feel like we should just start off with Dr. Doolittle. Let's break down this movie. Let's give some critique about it. Um because I think there's quite a few people who maybe aren't familiar that the 90's Dr. Doolittle film starring Eddie Murphy is in fact a remake. Shut up. What do you mean shut up? Hey, I was getting to do karaoke! However, if you watch these two movies, <laughs> like one after the other, it would yeah. be pretty hard to tell. There's basically nothing similar about them. Yeah. Um, so this first one, 1967 Dr. Doolittle, starring Rex Harrison, It is a story about an animal doctor who learns to speak to animals. Um, He is coached how to do this from one of his talking birds. He is then later thrown into an insane asylum because of this. Uh, Gets broken free with the help of his animal friends. And then embarks on an overseas adventure to find the great pink sea snail because
0: why the hell not? (laughs) This is you know, it's it, it's very clear that a lot of work and money went into this movie. A lot um, of money. <laughs> yes. In fact,
1: the, it had $17 million budget is how much it cost to make this
0: movie. So Dr. Doolittle uh, not only cost a lot of money to make, a lot of that budget was actually devoted to all the misfires um, in trying to get the movie to the screen because uh, it took several years for them to even start filming the movie. In fact, um, uh, they went through a couple of different uh, creative people at the helm, Uh, they went through several different writers, and they went through several different cast members. I mean, we might have had a third Best Picture nominee with Sidney Poitier, actually, because he um, he was the original uh, choice to play the uh, the uh, the William Shakespeare the 10th character. Right, right. Um, on the uh on the island that they land on mm-hmm. um and uh and so that was uh, in fact he actually closed a deal to do it um and he replaced Sammy Davis Jr who was going to do it um and then uh uh Sammy Davis Jr was fired so they could hire Sydney actually and and Sammy Davis Jr was apparently very upset about this although he sure. did end up recording an album with the songs from Dr. Doolittle, and and uh, uh, I guess he uh, buried the hatchet to uh, make some money off of it. But um, uh, this uh, that was just one of the many casting changes that happened. Rex Harrison was apparently famously difficult the entirety of the production. Nobody who involved with the movie had a kind word to say about him. Um, like Samantha Edgar, uh, who... Kind of plays the love interest. um, Such a bizarre love interest. It's so weird.
1: It's like she... They want her to have the chemistry with Rex Harrison, but she clearly has way more chemistry with Anthony Newley, who plays Matthew Mugg, who's a friend of the Doctor. Mm -hmm. But for some strange reason, they have her pining away after
0: Rex Harrison. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um... Although I will say that about the only musical number that I enjoyed was uh, the one with her stomping home. Yes, um, that was actually a really effective number. I will agree. It was like, I almost thought, okay, maybe I'll be able to uh, uh, at least like and just enjoy it now that she's here. But no, that was just a misnomer. Everything was bad after that. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> um. but Samantha Egger, uh, she... Um, uh said something to the effect of you know uh you know I didn't have a problem with him until he turned on me too you know <laughs> and none of the kids liked him nobody liked him and and he was uh, he was at one point taken off the production and then brought back when they couldn't get somebody else it was like this it was ridiculous uh Just the behind ridiculous. the scenes drama on this movie, it it was doomed from the very beginning, and it was not a success in any way. Like oh, it no. did not make money at the box office. But then, but then, uh, 20th Century Fox hosted a bunch of free screenings of the movie on the 20th Century lot, lot with wine um, and uh, food, and um, they invited all of the Academy members to come and check it out. And that's why, while it did not get a director, uh, acting, or a screenplay nomination, it was able to get Best Picture because, you know, everybody votes on on the top award, not just the uh, people who are in that specific part of the industry. And so they were able to woo enough of the larger Academy voters to get a, a Best Picture nomination, basically. This yeah, is a this bot. Is... This is a bot award. Definitely. This is one of our early instances of
1: a production company buying their nominations it's it is pretty evident um i will say it's too, so I, bad yeah it's so I, bad. i had never seen this movie until i watched it for this episode and i didn't really realize just how much of a musical that it is like it is flat this is a musical and uh, the songs are so unmemorable especially the one that wins best song talk to the animals i think a part of the reason why i'm so turned off by that song is it's just rex harrison talk singing yet again
0: i study every living creature's language so i can
1: speak to all of them on sight if friends say can he talk in crab or pelican you'll say like helica and you'll be right but it's It's even worse than in My Fair Lady. Uh, It's (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's so not effective. And the fact that it beats bare necessities for best song just really baffles me. I I don't understand how that happened. But none of the songs are memorable. In fact, there's too many. You know, I think the the glaring problem with this movie is it is far too long. You know, the plot and the, the musical numbers do not warrant a two and a half hour runtime for this movie.
0: Well, um, I mean, beyond that, like the songs, um, and apparently this movie was like cut down twice after disastrous preview screenings. Um, it yeah. still wasn't enough. But um, but like the way Rex Harrison talks, sings in this movie, it's almost like some of the songs happen and they're not songs. They're not it's like Yes it, it, It's it, like it's, a
1: monologue, like a soliloquy. It's,
0: it's like a soliloquy with uh with, you know, um appropriate backing music.
1: <laughs> yeah, like he it gets so annoying because he just like talks in rhythm and I'm sorry, that's that's I don't know, it's just not a musical number to me. It sort no, of worked in it, my fair lady, but it does not work here.
0: And it makes you think like something that might have salvaged this movie to where it might have at least been an enjoyable experience. Let me say, Rex Harrison is a good actor. He has made good movies. Like, there are things that I enjoy Rex Harrison and I'm not disputing the fact that he is a person who is worthy of having had a very illustrious film career. What I am saying, (laughs) 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 what I am saying is that if we had put um, a singer in this role who would have sung the part instead of talked it, um, I mean, maybe that would have upgraded a few of the songs to where they were partly maybe a little bit more memorable. And maybe mm. at least it would have had some of um, enjoyment in the sense that you had somebody who looked like they were having fun doing it. You know? Sure, yeah, but- he
1: just looks bored. He looks like he wants to be anywhere else. And, you know, it shows up. Like you were talking earlier, his attitude on set was just dismal. I'm such a firm believer if you're going to be an asshole on set you better deliver a performance at the very least and he doesn't i mean there's so many he actors who are quote-unquote difficult to work with but they still deliver on mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do for the movie he doesn't and i just we'll i find get it to, we'll
0: get yeah i find it angering that
1: he yeah i find it angry that he was like fighting for this role like clearly he doesn't want to do it and it yeah it, the film is all the worse because of it
0: yeah i i don't think anybody involved, none of the animals want to be there. No! I mean, uh, and let me say, like, a movie like this with this many creatures actually performing on screen, you would think that would hold some little bit of interest just because it's interesting to watch Mm. uh, seals or, uh, or, you know, squirrels or all these animals that you never see as like animal performers. It's not just some... It's not just a dog, you know, doing tricks in this movie. This is literally every animal you can think of is represented in this movie at one point or another. Mm-hmm. And and the fake animal that they make at the end of the movie, while ridiculous looking, is an interesting piece of machinery, I will say. Um, like, uh, they, the practical effects on how they made the big uh, pink—it's uh, not pink, by the way— um, it's pink on the inside um <laughs> right <laughs> the 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 great pink sea snail yes the great pink sea snail. like I find it kind of interesting the the mechanics of the um you know like I I can understand some nominations for you know the um the look of the film yes 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 because clearly a lot of the behind the scenes people went into a lot of pro- went to a lot of trouble to make this look good um and it does and and it is, it's, it, there are a lot of stills that you could see from this movie, you think, and you could think like, oh, that looks really interesting. Yes. But you'd be wrong, because the writing and the direction and the, um, and the, particularly the lead performance, I, there, I mean, I think that there are some supporting, some supporting performers who really give, uh, Richard Attenborough tries You know, like, listen, they gave um, Richard
1: Attenborough the Golden Globe for best supporting actor in this movie. And while I do think he probably has the most energy in the movie, he is in this for one number. He's in, he's out, and we never see him again. And I I
0: don't understand that Golden Globe win. (laughs) It's so bizarre to me. There's just so many moments in this movie, Sam. I, um, if you you guys want to know my opinions on movies all the time, I always log my my watches on letterboxd if anybody has that app and i usually write a little something and um the first thing i wrote in my review for this one was thank god it's over but um (laughs) i also said it's a it's riches of embarrassment
1: oh yes yes (laughs) you know it is
0: riches of it's like I would be uh, – this is one of those movies – apparently Rex Harrison's career as a leading man ended because of this movie. Well,
1: thank um, God.
0: I mean, but let's – there are things he's appropriate in. There are things I I think he's – he's in a movie called Unfaithfully Yours that's wonderful Um, from the 40s. But, uh, you know, but there – but, ugh. God. Yeah, no. This um, isn't
1: it. Listen, I knew we were in for so trouble bad. when there was a dancing double-headed llama. I I knew what? that we were headed for such disaster. I did wonder
0: how that double-headed llama happened. Did they cuz it looked pretty real, I will say. It did look
1: real. I'm guessing it was just a costume and there were two people in there tap dancing away.
0: <laughs> but again, like the people, the production team, I'm giving all the credit for this. Like they're yes. the they're the ones who actually tried you know, but everyone else involved, no. Yes, um, no, listen, my you... final
1: sum with this movie is, um, yeah, it looks expensive and looks really, really cool, but overall, Dr. Doolittle does little for me.
0: We will be referencing this movie for years to come as the as a baseline for how bad a movie can get.
1: Oh, God, yeah, how <laughs> Bad and just how embarrassing it is when a movie like this does slip into the best picture race. It just like delegitimizes the importance of
0: the best picture Oscar. I, oh, this ugh. is you know, we in the we had problems with several other best picture winners in the past, um, including Greatest Show on Earth, uh, Going My Way, um, Broadway Melody, Around the World uh, in 80 Days, around the world in 80 Days, Cimarron. Um, but even you know, Broadway Melody, which I think would probably consistently rank objectively as the worst uh, movie to win Best Picture. Yeah, I'd say that um, or The Greatest Show on Earth. One of those two, uh, you know. But Broadway Melody, I will the the slack I give Broadway Melody is that unlike The Greatest Show on Earth it is a a primitive talkie it had new technology it had new a new form of of a musical was still a new thing no one knew what it could look like yet or how it could look better you mm-hmm. know totally. or even what the formula for it was you know like so you can you can make excuses there because um it was new and um and so it, it's its win is a little like eh, there's better stuff that could win this year. Um, this isn't actually a very good movie, but it's not offensive. If that makes any right. sense. Um, Doctor Doolittle and and like greatest show on earth, I hate, but I it also is at the very least a spectacle, right? Um, that has a that has a cast that outside of one extremely annoying lead character. Well, actually, no. There's there's two cast members I don't like in that movie. There's a few, Um, uh, (laughs) but there's some good supporting performances. That's what I should say. Um, But no, this is this is the worst movie I have seen that was nominated for Best Picture. That is my conclusive feeling. And the movie that I watched before I watched this movie. Like the 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 movie that I had most recently seen before I watched this film was a 1978 thriller disaster movie called The Swarm, <laughs> <laughs> which is about killer bees. It is also atrocious, but it's one of those so bad you enjoy watching it movies. <laughs> yup, and Doctor Doolittle doesn't Dolittle even is. have. It doesn't even have that going for it. It isn't even It isn't even so bad. It's good. It's just yeah. bad. It's just I bad. Hate it's boring. It. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's awful. It has absolutely no business being in this lineup. So with that I being hate said, it, Sam. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> you know what? Let's move on then to some of the better films that were nominated this year. Let's go to something totally different and talk about Bonnie and Clyde. We robbed banks. Okay,
0: complete opposite feeling about Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> like, my feeling on this movie could not be more opposite. It may actually be my favorite movie of the year. That's my Beautiful. hot take to start off. You can you can say things about Bonnie and Clyde now.
1: <laughs> uh, for those who are unaware, this is a story of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. They are two of the most notorious bank robbers and outlaws. Of all time, and it just shows their story from their humble beginnings to when they first meet, all the way to their very famous and very bloody death. This was a huge surprise box office success. Uh, it was only made for two and a half million, grossed over 70 million at the box office. Nobody thought that was going to happen just because of the way this movie glorifies violence um and blood and sex, uh basically everything that the production code and the MPAAs were trying to prohibit in movies, this film goes just drastically against it. Uh and to really good effect. I will say this movie is um very entertaining to watch. Absolutely. It is considered one of the first "quote unquote" new Hollywood movies because of its breaking of those uh, normal cinematic norms. Uh, what do you think about it?
0: Um. It, well, yeah. First of all, I mean, this is this is a movie that uh, that defines the new Hollywood. You know, yep. um, this is uh, the movie that comes in and just kind of proves that the studio. Um, system is dying and we're going to start making movies uh, that are grittier. Uh, we're going to go on location. We're going to um, be a little bit more realistic in our depiction of violence and sex. Um, you know, we're going to show uh, all shades, no matter how um, ugly they might be, of the human condition. Yeah. And I um, uh, Warren Beatty, you know, very much wanted to make this movie, and uh, he had uh, a lot of kind of famous clashes with uh, studio head Jack Warner over it. There's a story that I used to tell when I was a tour guide at Warner Brothers where, uh, you know, Jack Warner always would take people out to the water tower and point up to the water tower and ask them whose name's up on the tower. (laughs) You know, uh, whenever he had a disagreement and he did that with Warren Beatty. And, you know, he said and Warren Beatty responded, well, it's your name, but those are my initials. Oh, my
1: God. That's so true. (laughs) 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 What a flex.
0: I know. Um, And so, uh, you know, Jack Warner just kind of hated this movie so much because, uh, you know, he my fair lady was his idea. It was his crowning achievement in his mind. You right, know, what a clean um, movie that is! Very clean, uh, f- very clean film. Um, uh, you know, a musical that is much better than uh, that. I don't love, but is still, uh, you know, Citizen Kane compared to Doctor Doolittle. Yep, yep. Um, but uh, he, um, he, uh, uh didn't. Uh, he was he was resistant to the oncoming, as were many of the people from, from the classic era, resistant to the um, change that was coming. Yep, it was inevitable throughout the '60s, and 1967 is really the year that it all comes to a head, and it's in large part because of the four other best picture nominees. But I think, especially in terms of violence and sex, because of uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and might I say, like this is not. By any stretch, you know, having lived 50-something, you know, this movie being 50-something years old, this is far from the most violent or the most sexual movie that I've seen. But compared to other movies of the time, it speaks about violence and sex in a much more frank and realistic way. Uh, One of the uh, primary, uh, like, subplots in the story is dealing with Bonnie and Clyde's... uh, sexual relationship and it kind of speaks in a way that is pretty honest about um you know impotency yes um and uh and that's really interesting um and even the reason why he's able to get over that whether or not we're dealing with reality of i don't think this is actually taken from fact about Clyde barrow in real life but um but the way that he gets over it says something about you know um uh the masculine condition you know um and oh yeah you know about uh toxic ma- masculinity you could even say um so like uh, this movie is so um is such a huge leap forward and um it uh it, it it's it's not I don't know. It's it's. I think it's a perfect version of what it is. That's all I'm going to say.
1: Yeah, and I would say, too, in addition to it glorifying and not shying away from violence and sex, this is also such a drastic change to the way a movie is made. I mean, you watch this movie, and it just looks and feels like... One of those underground independent films that we're going to be getting into in the 1970s, when you have all of the the film school grads just going out with their cameras and making their own movies. You know, this movie is very choppy. Um, it's kind of grainy. It's not perfect. You know, not everything is always in perfect focus. There's uh, just random tonal changes throughout the film too. It's, um, um, you know, you go from moments of Uh, happiness and um, funny uh, a feeling of funny uh, just uh, changing over to you know violence and anger it's it's uh yeah it's very shifty in that so it doesn't feel like um, a classic Hollywood production anymore you know this is that younger generation taking over
0: yeah 100 percent you um uh, and might I say, like, the editing in this movie is, is fantastic. Um, it does, uh, it, there's a very avant-garde, very much, um, inspired, I think, by the French New Wave, um, mm-hmm. of the early 60s. You know, movies like, uh, Breathless, for instance. Um, but this is, uh, it's, it's, there's so much, in its graininess, in its lack of perfection, there's such style, you know? Oh, yeah. Um. And from the way from the way that uh, Faye Dunaway's uh, costuming is for Bonnie, you know, to uh, the one of my favorite scenes, uh, whenever they go to visit Bonnie's uh, family, yeah. Um, and I read they uh, they actually shot that scene through a window to make it look hazier and more mm-hmm. nostalgic, and it, oh, it does have a very interesting effect when you're watching it it does feel oh definitely uh, like it's something of a a vintage photograph you know yeah
1: and this movie does have a lot to say with the way it's filmed which is what i think you're getting at um there is a purpose to the reasons it was shot and edited and um even uh, decorated in this way you know i think they're trying to give a voice to the anger that was really coursing through American society in the late 60s. And you see, um, they kind of um, give a reasoning for their um, murder and their robbery because they are poor. And this is the only way that they can make money and feed themselves, clothe themselves, give themselves a house. Um, You know, this movie takes place in the 1930s uh, during the Great Depression. But there's such a similarity between the reasons why people are mad in the 30s and angry again in the 60s. I mean, you see posters of FDR everywhere in the background of this film. And Bonnie and Clyde have that scene where they um, meet the like the homeless family just living on the streets. And the homeless family helps them, you know, helps nurse them back to health. If they've been shot up, they give them food, they give them water so it kind of shows that Bonnie and Clyde have the support of the poverty stricken public, which has a lot of power to it.
0: And there is, there is a lot of basis in, in truth, as far as that goes, you know, this movie is not factual in its, um, it's not factual as far as uh, a lot of details about Bonnie and Clyde in real mm. life. Um, the Barrow gang, as they were called. Um, there are, there are facts that aren't correct. I mean, uh, the basic idea of how his brother dies is pretty close to accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, his, uh, um, uh, Estelle Parsons character, uh, she does, uh, get blinded in one eye. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, she did leave, live to see this movie by the way, and she consulted on the script even, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, but then she said she loved the script, but then she hated how her character turned out on screen, which is funny because, you know, a Sel-, Sel Parsons ends up winning an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I guess
1: I can see that. I mean, she really is portrayed in quite an annoying light.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, no, she screams half the movie. but She shrieks. Um, oh, God.
1: I thought you'd be happy if I got shot! <laughs> yeah, you would've saved us all a lot of trouble! trouble. But don't let that woman talk to me like that!
0: Yes, she does. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- it, in spite of that, there's a lot of the spirit of it that I think it, it captures correctly from what I was able to read about Bonnie and Clyde, um, because ultimately, a lot of what Clyde claimed, his... Um, his motivations were were bucking against the uh, criminal justice system that had kept him in jail yep. and bucking against, um, you know, the banks uh, because of, uh, you know, uh, 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 economic uh, iniquity during the Great Depression. And, yep. um, and also, uh, and the way that they viewed people with money versus people who didn't have money. That said, they also did hold up a lot of gas stations and grocery stores and things like that, which would not have been the rich people, you know? Right, right. Um, so there are a lot of um, – there, and they did kill a few, a few civili- civilians in real life. I think there are about 11 killings that are ultimately credited with them. But it was – they were quite popular with the American public while they were on the lam – um, for, I mean, like they were front page headlines all over the country. Um, and then the public kind of turned on them after they, uh, killed a couple of, uh, state troopers, I believe. Um, yep. uh, and, uh, but for a while the public was kind of with them in a way, I think, cause for a while they were viewed as more Robin Hood type characters, you know? Exactly. Um, exactly there's, there's, uh, it does a great job of capturing all the different contradictions that it must be to be a criminal, criminal outlaw as these people are. Um, but it, uh, that, that's why the choppy editing style, that's why the random burst of banjo music. That's why the, um, uh, the tonal shifts work so well in this movie because it captures, I think the frenetic nature of what, they're doing yeah i would say so yeah and i think all of that really
1: resonated with the american public during the late 1960s which fueled its box office which fueled social status which i then think is what led it to its best picture nomination 100 percent. let's move on to another movie that's drastically different from the last let's talk about guess who's coming to dinner
0: guess who's coming to dinner yes let's let's do it I I've actually seen this movie more than I have any other on the list
1: yeah I've seen this movie quite a bit as well Uh, this movie is a story of a girl from an upper-class white suburban family and she is bringing home her black boyfriend to meet the parents Now, of course this is very controversial at the time because when this movie was being made there were still 17 states that considered interracial marriage illegal in fact, it wasn't until six months, I think, before the film was released that the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia happened, which effectively ended those laws in all of those states. So this is right in the middle of the conversation of interracial marriage. And it just puts it on the screen for everyone to see.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, You know, there's a there's there's a lot of back and forth. Sc- criticism about this movie um for various uh reasons uh i think that of the five nominees this one is probably the one that plays the most uh like a traditional film yeah okay yes it is structured like a re- like a traditional movie it has the pace of a regular movie um it uh it, it's you know, largely studio bound you know, it, it feels uh, it feels like a regular studio movie just happens to be about something that's uh, very progressive. Um, and, you know, the criticism that typically comes with this movie is that, uh, you know, City Poitier's character is like the, the perfect person, you yes. know, and that... Too perfect. <laughs> uh, too perfect. And that Catherine Houghton's uh, character, that's... Catherine Hepburn's real-life niece, by the way, playing her daughter in this film, um, that she is also, you know, just kind of, like, too simple and doesn't seem to have any complexity and, and um, you know, it's just kind of naive, you know? Right. Um, and uh, I went to a screening at the TCM Film Festival a few years ago of this movie, and she did a QA. and um, a and she said that uh, there actually was an additional scene... Um, that they filmed where she had more fire in her belly, you know? Um, And they ended up cutting it because the overwhelming feeling and the reason why these characters are presented in the way they are is that in order for this to be a movie that actually affected change in 1967, the feeling was that the characters had to be pretty straightforward and perfect, if you will, Um, So that the American, the racist American public of that time, the racist white people of that time, I should say, (laughs) um, would have the, may actually accept that relationship. And, um, you know, retroactively, you look at that and you think like, well, this is just, you know, um, this is just white people patting themselves on the back for being progressive, you know. Uh, a white savior type movie. Um, And uh, yeah, if this movie was made today, that's exactly what it would be. Um, But I think in, in 1967, it's, it's in a different time in a different situation where, where we didn't have any type of majority support for interracial marriage being okay, even amongst progressives at the time. And, uh, what is remarkable about this movie, and the thing that I like about it, is that the lead characters are these affluent San Francisco progressives, and they are forced to face their own supposed ideals. Right. You know? And, um, you know, it would be interesting to see this uh, exact same story. Uh, with people having to accept their transgender child or their, uh, or their, I think that we're, I think we're probably past the point where, uh, coastal elites would have problems accepting their gay son, but I would like to see the story perhaps with, with a child who, um, who identifies, um, as, as, uh, they or queer or, uh, or they were assigned at birth as a man, but they are actually a woman. Like, I think that that would be the more modern-day version of what the story is. Absolutely. Um, but um, but it is interesting to see uh, two... I, I just love the idea of two progressive individuals having to be confronted with their own uh, supposed beliefs. Yeah, and um, I think what and- you're saying... And I will say, I I will say because of that, it really isn't until that last scene with the speech that, that Spencer Tracy gives, which is one of his finest moments on screen, I might say, Mm -hmm. um, to where you might say this is, that's the moment that it becomes a little white savior to me. I feel like before, before that, um, this movie is more an indictment of, uh, of white people having to face their own, like, uh, white Democrats basically facing their own, uh, their own supposed, uh, leanings. Um, but, uh, so you have that caveat of there being a little white savior-ness at the end of this film, but I still, I still think the message is very interesting and very, um, and very, unfortunately, relevant uh, to today.
1: Definitely, yeah, because what you're saying, I think, too, is like the only the only reason a white person, like the only thing that would be going against Sidney Poitier is the color of his skin. And I think this is saying that like, if that's the only reason, then you have to come out as racist, you know, because you can't say, I don't want you to date him because he doesn't have a good job, because he's a doctor. I don't want you to date him because he's disrespectful, but he's not. He's waiting to have sex with her until marriage. He is, as you said earlier, the perfect ideal person. So if you still have a problem with him, then you're feckin' racist. And that's what this movie is, you know, shoving down people's throats, to say the least. Well, it's, uh, it's also sh-
0: interesting. One one element of this movie that I think is interesting is I think it's interesting that they have a black maid in the film. Yes. Um, And the black maid has is suspicious of sydney poitier you mm-hmm. know and um but also just showing that iniquity by having a black maid and then you know having this black son-in-law and having his family over for dinner like we you're just it's just forcing it, it, it's very interesting it's very slyly it is progressive, and you can say, like, oh, it's progressive because of interracial marriage. But I will say the movie has some levels, and it is talking about um, the class differentials um, that existed—that exist, I should say, between a white people and people of color in a very uh, stark and—I um, uh, don't want to say in-your-face, but, you know, it's not— uh, it's not subtle, but it's um, but it's sly in the right. way it kind of sneaks up on you with some of the things that it's saying. You know, true, very um, very true. And we I don't do think get... it's I don't think it's as great as Bonnie and Clyde as a movie, but I do think it is. Um, I, I today I'm landing on I have ha- I've gone back and forth on this one before, but I I'm, today I'm landing on the fact that I think it is a a very good movie.
1: Yes, very good movie. I I agree with you. A little bit dated, and I don't think it deserved quite all the nominations that it got. Um, I can see its win for writing. I think it was a very daring screenplay for that year in that context, so I understand that. But its win... For Catherine Hepburn, I have to believe <laughs> was more of a sentimental win, owing to the fact that it was her final on-screen performance with Spencer Tracy, their ninth collaboration, and he died two weeks after wrapping filming. You know, an and award she was for with her him
0: when he died, and they exactly had an very award long for her. Affair.
1: Yeah, an award for her is an award for both of them and their contribution to the movie industry, rather it than is... an award for a performance.
0: I, I will say, I think of the performances in the film, he actually does give, I think, the best performance in the film. Um, you know, I yeah. think he has the greatest journey to go through yes. as a character. Um, and his final speech, his final moment on screen, because this is his last movie, um, yeah. is one of... I think it's... it you There are very few better... There are few better ways you could find to go out. Because it is a great monologue. He does a great job delivering it. And the moment that happens between him and Catherine Hepburn in that scene is sublime. Yes. Um,
1: yeah. The Her tears they, are
0: real. <laughs> it it feels real. It's a great scene. Um, uh, so I, I, he already had two Oscars. I don't want to give him another one, but I do like this. Uh, the best of the performances of his I've seen. I think Katharine Hepburn is uh, solid in the film. I, th- I don't think she makes a misstep. I think she's the perfect person for the part. I love the way she says, guess who's coming to dinner? Um, she also has... She has also one of the greatest, like, takedowns of all time. Yes. When she fires a racist employee of hers. Um, and... Excuse me, the way she says, start your mo- motor, you guys will know when it happens, it's beautiful. Then take the check for $5,000, which I feel you deserve, and get permanently lost. It's not that I don't want to know you, Hillary, although I don't, it's just that I'm afraid we're not really the sort of people that you can afford to be associated with. Don't speak, Hillary, just go. Go. Yes. Um but uh it does feel like uh a, a supporting role in a lot of ways. True, um, true. True, true. It is it's the biggest female part in the movie. But um you know, uh, part of it also is that nobody in the Academy knew that at this point in time when you're voting here, nobody knew that Katherine Hepburn would is only a year off of giving probably her greatest performance. Um, yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> nobody
0: knew that On Golden Pond would happen in the 80s. Like, right. you know, nobody... At this point in time, Catherine Hepburn is a great actress who's only won one Oscar. Yep, you know? that's true. And, and there, so this, this might would have be been a... viewed as the opportunity to give her another one. You know? Definitely, yes. I mean, who else was... Who else was you, you
1: want? Who else was nominated? And Bancroft for the Graduate, which I think is okay. a lovely transition into our final of, of the four nominated films yes. for Best Picture.
0: I do want to talk about whenever we in our next episode. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about that Best Actress race. Mm-hmm. Um. I think I want to dive into that more than we have time to in this episode. Yes. Uh, So uh, that will be my spotlight in the next episode. But let's go ahead and talk about The Graduate.
1: Let's get into it. The Graduate, another Mike Nichols film, his second... Uh, and his win for best director. This is a movie about a recent graduate, college graduate, Benjamin Braddock, played by Dustin Hoffman, his film debut. And he feels out of place in this new world, so he takes up a romantic relationship with the wife of his father's law partner, Mrs. Robinson, played by Anne Bancroft. And to further complicate things, he does eventually begin to fall in love with Mrs. Robinson's daughter. And she strictly forbids this. Thus, the drama ensues. Uh, this was a huge box office hit, uh, made $105 million against only a $3 million budget, and probably, um, probably the most significant film of the 1960s, uh, along with Bonnie and Clyde, definitely helped to usher in this new wave of Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. Every part of this movie just screams fresh uh, you know from the way it's shot directed by mike nichols to the music of simon and garfunkel mm-hmm. and how that is incorporated into the plot um and also just this idealization of sex with an older woman you know this is something that i don't think anyone had ever seen on the screen and to uh tie in we were talking about with the best actress race here and bancroft as mrs Robinson gives such a layered performance of this older woman, you know? I think she plays it with such um, a chilling confidence, but there is this sadness underneath her. You know, she's mourning this life of what could have been, and, you know, she even reveals to Benjamin, um, unwillingly, but she does, that she studied arts in college, and she obviously had dreams of pursuing a profession in that, but married a man and became a housewife. Uh, so you have these um, these two generations, right, the, the new college grad and the older woman, and you see how these two people are able to come together in their confusion and sadness, you know, she's mourning a life that could have been, and he's mourning a life that he has no idea what direction it's going into, and it brings them together.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Um the graduate is uh you know actually uh we talked last week about um about uh who's fair virginia wolf another mike nichols movie i actually saw these both uh for the first time back to back uh Mm. a few years ago uh on tcm they had a mike nichols night and i just sat and watched um who's fair virginia wolf and the graduate um but uh, yeah it was a really good night um uh, I also had like laundry to do, so it was like, <laughs> was perfect. it was a perfect, it was a perfect evening. Um, but, uh, The Graduate, uh, is, um, it has my favorite, you mentioned the soundtrack and I just want to say before I say anything else, it is one of my, it is probably my favorite soundtrack of a movie. Oh, um, yeah. it has, uh, literally, uh, both of my favorite, um, Simon and Garfunkel songs. I love Simon and Garfunkel, but, uh, I'll, the only, the only of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel th- songs that isn't there is Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, but sure. uh, they have, uh, you know, of course, Mrs. Robinson and, and The Sound of Silence plays multiple times. Um, and it's a little bit different each time you hear it. Uh, and I love The Sound of Silence. And then, of course, uh, Scarborough Fair is such a wonderful song as well. Yes. I just, I love... Um, I love all those those songs and they do such a great job of capturing this mood of the late 60s where you had this generation coming up. You know, the baby boomers are starting to come of age and they're they're some that are hippies and there's some that are destined to become yuppies, you know, mm-hmm. and um, this kind of like, OK, we have uh we have the opportunity to have more than any generation has ever have, has ever had. What do we do now? And what has happened to the previous generation in the form of Anne Bancroft, who, by the way, was only like eight or nine years uh, older than her only on-screen five daughter. five years old. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah. I was talking about uh, Catherine uh, Ross, but yes. yes. Um, you know, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. One of the great shots of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, with her leg up and him looking through the leg, oh, it's so good. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, <laughs> aren't you? It's perfect. Um, it is absolutely perfect. Um, but uh, this movie is also in the in the way that Bonnie and Clyde is saying something about the generation that's coming up in the late '60s and this kind of like anger at. Uh, at the older people who are running the show and the way that they're treating the younger people, all of that is here. All of the adults in the movie outside of Anne Bancroft, uh, as Mrs. Robinson are really boring and shown as being like total, like, uh, plastics, if you will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. And nice little reference. Uh, and, um, in particular, uh, you know, his dad, uh, who is just like this like stoic nothing boring who would ever want to hang out with a man, although he later becomes a much more interesting person when he plays Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets <laughs> <Yes>. World. <laughs> Feeny. Feeny. Yeah. He's also in a really great movie that came out this year called Two for the Road as well. And he plays John Adams in 1776. Yes. Um which of course is why Boy Meets World has John Adams High as their high school. Good God, consider yourselves fortunate that you have John Adams to abuse for no sane man would tolerate it. That's the total aside anyway. Um, but uh, the way they show that generational divide, even if it's speaking to something that's happening in the late 60s, I think this movie continues to hold up and people relate to it because I feel every generation when they're just you know, in their around college age or they're just out of college, every, even people in their late teens, you, you always feel that disconnect with your parents and whether or not, whether or not the reality of what these adults are like in the movie is what they're really like. um, That is how younger people view adults at a certain point. Yeah, it's like this you know.
1: pressure that adults put on their kids when they, mm-hmm. you know, you have to go to college, you must graduate, you must get a good job afterward. And Dustin Hoffman does represent the rebellion to that movement. You know, it's much better to just chill in my mom and dad's pool on, an, on a floaty, you know, like.
0: And he I wasn't think, the first choice for that role either. Keep. Right. He was, uh, Robert Redford. Which, totally different direction, you know? Oh,
1: man. And Mike Nichols even said Robert Redford is too pretty to play the role. And boy, isn't that true. No, I think Dustin Hoffman is absolutely the best choice. He's so weird. He's so, uh, I don't want to say creepy, but he's just so unassuming that it just works, you know? It's it's. Perfect.
0: Although in about a decade, we'll get to see the two of them together in a movie. And it yes. will work beautifully. Um <laughs> Absolutely. yeah no, this is
1: one of the best one of the great you know film debuts Dustin Hoffman gives here and it just catapults him into stardom
0: it is uh and he gives a great performance and um and you're right Anne Bancroft's layered performance is wonderful too there could be an argument that she's maybe more of a supporting character in the film
1: mhm um, i can see that she
0: does kind of disappear in the second half largely yep um You know, uh, as the relationship with Catherine Ross happens a little bit more. um, But uh, I want to put a huge spoiler alert up because I do want to talk about something that happens at the end of this film. Yes. Um, So spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) uh, Catherine Ross's wedding is the climax of the film. Uh, Elaine, that's the name of the character, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so Elaine's wedding is the is the climax of the movie, and he ends up crashing the wedding, and the two run away and hop on a bus, and it's like they've escaped, and they're going to um, they're going to go live out their dreams. But this movie has something else to say. Mm-hmm. And as The Sound of Silence starts to play, we see these two characters realize that they have no idea what happens next definitely they have no
1: idea what they want that happiness to be and i think that you're right that final image of them sitting in the back of that bus her in a wedding gown him all sweaty from running there they've made their dramatic escape and then their smiles start to fade it's such a perfect image to represent 1967 68 any of the late 60s really
0: yeah and they'll end up becoming just like their parents absolutely you know that's that's the future they ultimately realize happily ever after leads to it's an and it's about the cycle of life you yes. know it's it's so brilliant
1: it's brilliant and i will say um of these four nominees my pick for the best of the four, is the graduates. I think this is the movie that has the most to say, and as and is shot in the way to represent that the best. Talking about um, this counterculture movement, the youth conflicting with the older generations, and where is America going to go from here? The answer is we don't know. And yeah, I think this movie says that in in any in the best way it can.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's it's a perfect it's another perfect film. I think both this and Bonnie and Clyde are perfect. Um, I think which which one would you choose? uh, Right now, I think I'd pick Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I, I will say this is something that could change. Fair. You know, uh depending on what I have most recently watched. I have more recently watched Bonnie and Clyde, so that may be part of the reason why. <laughs> that very well it, um, could be <laughs> uh it is uh but I can see uh this is a difficult decision. Um and the decision will get even more difficult when we uh come back next week to talk about the uh other final nominee. But I do um but I do really like the graduate and I'm starting to suspect I know we're only two movies into his filmography, but I think you like Mike Nichols.
1: I adore Mike Nichols. He is one of my favorite directors. Absolutely, yes. And this would be, yeah, I think, one of his shining moments. And the fact that it's only his second film just amazes me it amazes me
0: yeah so uh <laughs> next week uh, we're going to get into the rest of the ceremony any notes and spotlights that we might have any snubs that might exist in 1967 and we will get real in depth with in the heat of the night the best picture winner for 1967 thank you for joining us in part one of our special two-parter for this pivotal year in
1: restless dreams i walked over.